Welcome to Saving the Game. This is episode 82, Diaspora, recorded Thursday, March 24th of 2016, with your hosts, Grant and Peter. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. And I'm Peter. How you doing, Peter? Good. And you sound like you're doing a lot better. I know. Sleep and actually feeling human make me, you know, less exhausted. Hooray. Managed to kick the uh, the bugs that have been hounding you for... <sighs> At least temporarily, yes. <laughs> Let's just say that. <laughs> Temporary reprieve, yay! Hooray, yeah. Anyway... Uh, we have a huge topic to get into tonight, more than I think we thought it would be, so let's uh, let's yeah. jump into this. But one note before we do, uh, those of you who are listening to us, we would love it if you'd rate and review us on iTunes, share us out on social media, and do all the usual things we ask you to do. Those help a ton. Yep. Can't say it enough. They really do help us reach new people, get the word out about the show, uh, and add to our community of listeners. It's great. Yeah, and we we love having a community of listeners. Our interactions with them have been fantastic, and we'd like more. So absolutely, help us get more. And yep, with that, great. we should dive into this four-page monstrosity of an outline. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we should. All righty. Um, why don't you take this first bit here? Okay. Um, we're going to start with scripture, as we usually do. Uh, this first one is Second Chronicles 36.20. He carried into exile to Babylon, the remnant, who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. And this next is Psalm 147, verses 2 to 4. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the exiles of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars and calls each of them by name. And this is John seven thirty-three to 36. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks, and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? And our last bit of scripture is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. So our topic tonight is diaspora. Eh, partly exile, but mostly we're talking about this concept of diaspora. So, we need to define this first. It's a Greek word, diaspora, uh, meaning scattering or dispersion. And it appears several times in uh, the Greek letters of the New Testament in the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the whole Bible. It appears in a lot of other places as well, but in, mostly in the letters and once in John, this word or some grammatical variant of it appears several times. So it's worth talking about both 
because it is a word that is important in the New Testament, but also because it has some major implications for the early church, the the people of Israel from whom that church kind of comes, and for gaming as a big topic that you can have a lot of fun with. So let's get into this. Yeah, there's a staggering amount of gaming material here in addition to kind of some interesting religious history and cultural history. So right. yeah, let's let's grab the shovels and start digging. Right. So diaspora, like I said, it's it means scattering or dispersion, and it refers to a population scattered from a central homeland into some wider area, typically but not always scattered involuntarily. It's distinct from a migration, and it's somewhat distinct from an exile. Both of these typically, well, exile typically means that a group of people are moved from one place to another place, or an organization moves from one place to another place. But generally speaking, it's a single place. And a migration generally is a willing, permanent movement from one place to another, right? Diaspora has several characteristics, which we'll get to and kind of uses our framework for talking about it. But some examples of this diaspora where it's a a scattering, generally involuntarily, uh, the Jewish dispersion from Israel under the Romans and kind of in, in pre-Roman times, the dispersion of Greeks from Constantinople after it's captured by Arab armies and kind of the, the first millennium there, the scattering of African tribes as a result of the transatlantic slave trade, the dispersion of Palestinians from modern Israel. There are a lot of these. Basically, anytime a people is scattered to multiple places but retains an identity, that's when you have a diaspora. The definition has expanded somewhat over time, mostly in a scholarly context, to the point where scholars now are starting to define different kinds of diasporas, but it has traditionally always meant the scattering of Jewish people, uh, and now that the term has become more adopted in a scholarly context for a wider range, that, that meaning has started to go away, but that's typically what it has meant. Now, in 1991, in an article called Diasporas of Modern Societies, Myths of Homeland and Return, uh, Dr. William Safran defined a diaspora as having most of six different characteristics. Now, not all of these are necessary for a diaspora, but for a movement of people to be considered a diaspora, it needs to have most or all of these. You could miss one, maybe two, but once you start lose, losing more than those, it really kind of becomes a different kind of movement of people. Okay, so what are these? So first, these people or their ancestors, and in fact, let me just quote Dr. Safran in his entirety here, okay? Okay. First, they or their ancestors have been dispersed from a specific original center to two or more peripheral or foreign regions. Second, they retain a collective memory, vision, or myth about their original homeland, its physical location, history, and achievements. Third, they believe that they are not and perhaps cannot be fully accepted by their host society and therefore feel partly alienated and insulated from it. Fourth, they regard their ancestral homeland as their true ideal home and as the place to which they or their descendants would or should eventually return when conditions are appropriate. Fifth, they believe that they should collectively be committed to the maintenance or restoration of their original homeland and to its safety and prosperity. And sixth, 
they continue to relate personally or vicariously to that homeland in one way or another, and their ethno-communal consciousness and solidarity are importantly defined by the existence of such a relationship. Now, that's a lot of text right yeah, there. Yeah, that's a, that's We're a lot go of kind of scholarly of text. Right. We're going to go into each of these individually, but that's what we're talking about, right? And I think if we you think of communities which have been scattered in a diaspora, you can see each of those. So let's talk about the gaming implications of these, because I think in doing so, we'll hit on the other things, right? Yeah. We'll talk one, about some of the One the real history. quick note of warning going forward. I'm going to be referencing the Quarians from Mass Effect quite a bit in this, because they are a fictional example of a diaspora. If you have not played the series and don't want even the minor spoilers I'm going to be handing out. Pause this episode and go play it and then come back to it. Don't yeah. say, I'm not going to say, oh, don't listen to this episode. No. Yeah. You should totally listen to this episode. Come on. Yeah. But at the same time, go at least YouTube the stuff so you can experience it. I mean, at this point, it should all be out there. So yeah. All right. That out of the way, let's talk about these. And we're going to use uh, Saffron's rules as a framework here. So let's first talk about the homeland and the dispersion. Right? Sure. This idea that a people scattered by a diaspora, either that generation or their ancestors, had an original homeland, a center from which they came, and they are now in these peripheral foreign regions. Multiples of them. Right? right? That's, that's important. Let's talk about that homeland first. First, in terms of gaming purposes and ideas, this center could simply be uninhabitable for some reason, or rumored to be uninhabitable. Sure, this could be anything from, well, Chernobyl uh, in the real world is an uninhabitable area sure. because of a nuclear accident, but there was no sort of like military action or anything there. They weren't, people who lived there weren't forcibly dispersed by conquest or something. Something bad happened there that made the area unlivable and they had to leave. Right. Good example from gaming, yeah. uh, at least from gaming settings, the Mornland in oh, Eberron. Yeah. Uh, which is 100% a whole bunch of exiles mourning for their homeland that is completely uninhabitable now. Yeah, the entire former nation of, what was it, Sire? In, uh... S yeah, Sire. It's, it's gone. It, specifically, everything up to its border is gone. Yeah. Cut out of the map, and it's really weird and freaky, and nobody knows why. It's a big mystery in the setting, and one of those great GM hooks. Yeah. And it's interesting that I don't think they ever gave a canon explanation as to what happened no. either. No, they specifically said, here are a couple of general ideas, but we totally want you to come up with your own reason for your game, which I thought was a nice way to approach it. Yeah, they did a lot of stuff like that in Eberron. But anyway, mm -hmm. so another one from fiction, and this is where I first start talking about Mass Effect, is Rannoch, which is the home planet of the Quarians, who they're kind of spread around. They... um. They live on like this nomadic fleet of ships, but they also go out from there on kind of a, a rite of passage to adulthood. And their planet is uninhabitable because it is populated by a race of intelligent machines that they make that booted them off of it after a war they had. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. In fact, actually, the uninhabitable homeland is kind of a common sci-fi trope, especially regarding Earth. It really is. This whole idea of, you know, we're out among the planets, but Earth is lost to us. Foundation had this. The Hyperion Cantos has this. Fantastic series of books, by the way. You should absolutely read it. Dan Simmons. Uh, the Alpha Centauri video game and 
many others yeah, had this Bali. as kind of a core conceit. The Bali, Pixar movie. Yeah. yeah. Earth is uninhabited, although not permanently. Again, it's a homeland that people can return to, and, you know, yep. the whole hope of returning home is a big part of it, right? It definitely is, especially in Wally. Yes, exactly. Interestingly, in a lot of science fiction, whatever social fear, that whatever overwhelming social problem permeates the era that they're writing in, tends to be the cause for Earth not being habitable anymore. You know, in the the Arthur C. Clarke era and Asimov's era, it was nuclear war, say. Um, nowadays, ecological destruction, so on and so forth. It kind of says, this is the big social concern of our time, and it's why we can't go back. Yeah, we have we have wrecked our, our homeland, and our inability to return to it is our fault, and this right. is why. And the our fault, that cause, is kind of an interesting marker in time. Yeah. Now, the collective memory of the scattered people, the members of this diaspora, could be very accurate— which is interesting, right? Maybe they have good records. Maybe that it's not that long ago. Yeah, or I mean, or like if we warped. got forced off of Earth in modern day, I mean, we've got all of this incredibly sophisticated recording technology. Everything sure. from the computers that Grant and I are recording this podcast on to like high-def video cameras. We've got the internet. There's all this stuff that could be archived and stored on hard drives. And as long as that data was maintained, it would be immutable and it would be as accurate as anybody could make it at the time and it would give you a very good clear picture right now three thousand years later when much of that has decayed has been lost has been scattered and the stories we tell about earth have warped over time it's very different yep right earth is maybe very idealized maybe it's something horrible in our memory our collective memory maybe it's a an eden a, a lost paradise who knows so anybody who goes back to Earth, or, you know, whatever homeland we're talking about here, may well be wildly disappointed or wildly surprised. We don't know. And what you do with that depends on the game. Yeah, okay, so this is this is one place where I think you've got the first this of many good world, opportunities. Well, this is a world-building choice. Yeah, for some, so, like, these these records could be anything from, like we were saying, highly accurate, where they would give you a very clear picture of what this this place is like and possibly even some indication as to how to survive there. Or they could be so inaccurate that they would essentially be a detailed field manual on how to get lost and die and anywhere along that continuum. Yeah. Another possibility is that that homeland is simply just inaccessible for some reason. Um, right. It's not gone, but you can't get back. Right. So like... The African slaves <laughs> um, in prior centuries, they had no way to return to Africa. They were prisoners. They yep. didn't have right. access to ships. Uh, mo even if they weren't prisoners and had access to ships, most of them weren't trained as sailors and couldn't navigate it. They, they didn't have those skills. Right. Uh, likewise, early Christians, especially Jewish Christians, were forced to flee Jerusalem and Judea due to political and religious persecution, what we see in Acts and some of those subsequent letters, right? Yeah. But Judea was not destroyed. The Romans destroyed the temple, which was a big blow to the Jews, but the Christian community there was not, it had already been scattered, right? Right. So you have that, that scattering, but the loss of the temple is not an enormous blow to especially the Gentile Christians, but they're not really welcome 
anymore in that area, so they can't go back. Right. There was actually a an early Fate System game that I have called Diaspora, and its background conceit was that there were these kind of hyperspace tunnels connecting star systems throughout the galaxy, okay? And humanity kind of grew up on Earth, said, oh, hey, these are cool, and spread out throughout the galaxy. This massive immigration. And then, for whatever reason, those tunnels shut down, leaving these linked small clusters of systems. Now, this is kind of a, a setup conceit so that you have a cluster of worlds that aren't Earth that are where your story takes place, right? And they are linked, but you can't really leave them through these tunnels. Okay. Now, that's great, but that is a diaspora. Earth is still present. It's probably still fine. There are probably still people on it. But you can't get there. Right. The Where these stories take place, it is completely inaccessible. There's, there's no way anybody's ever going to get back there. So those people are part of a diaspora, not because of politics, but because literally the way back closed. So that brings us to the dispersion. How were these people dispersed? And that has some really big impacts on the other elements that we're going to talk about, because a violent military expulsion is very different in terms of the effects on the exiled community the surrounding polities and everyone else then say an ecological problem or something like this diaspora example right this sci-fi example where it's just oh the way back closed the people in the parts of japan that were affected by the tsunami a few years ago had to leave and really sure. can't go back because those areas are uninhabitable but it's not it's not the same as if they had been conquered and driven off the island entirely Exactly. It, it's very different, and how they are received in their host place is very different, and what they remember is very different. And those all have some major follow-on effects, so that if you are doing world-building or character-building, you need to think about those and how the relationship between those characters and those nations is formed. Yeah, and it's interesting because not all... Not all of the nations in your setting are likely to have the exact same reaction to this. If right. you've if you've got a prosperous, good <laughs> nation that's got space and resources to spare, they might welcome refugees. And you're like, hey, look, we've got these people coming in. You know, our population is small. We've got places to put them. This might be good for our economy. On the other hand, if you have a country that's really struggling, this influx of people could be seen as a very bad thing. And... Depending on the circumstances, I mean, maybe these people were displaced by an ally of the country that they're trying to get into or an enemy of the country they're trying to get into. So they've got a certain political status to them that they wouldn't have had just if they were still in their homeland. There's a lot to consider there. Uh, Yeah, definitely. And where they're scattered to matters a lot because during your game, during your story, that's where you're starting, right? That's typically, okay, this is how things are right now, and we need to know about that. We need to know both the host country and the people who are scattered, and we need to know the relationship between them. Specifically, you need to know the relationship between the exiled people and all of their host countries, because remember, a diaspora is generally a scattering to multiple places, right? 
Jews who were scattered in the you know the first the early part of that first millennium and a little bit before scattered really all over Eurasia and into Africa. You're, you know, the Jews in England had rather different experiences than Russian Jews or Jews in Samarkand or Jews in North Africa. And you need to be able to distinguish between those and maybe talk about them as different people. You know, if you've got, um, say, people fleeing Earth because of some devastation, they go to different planets and develop differently because the host planet is very different. Well, you've got the same people and they identify as the same people, but really they're wildly different. And you have these internal rifts that form due to the different experiences they have and the different ways that they grow up in exile. Well, and this can be fairly dramatic even if they're not leaving a planet, just as to what they have to adapt to. I mean, look at, in kind of the modern world, look at the Syrian refugees. You come out of Syria, which is located in the Middle East, which is a very warm, arid place, and let's say you're taken in by Canada. <laughs> climatologically, leaving all cultural considerations aside, climatologically, Canada is about as different from the Middle East as you can possibly get and still be on the same planet. Yeah, it's it's very different. Now, there are a few little tiny places where you'll kind of say, well, no, it's not quite so different in certain situations, but generally speaking... I mean, just the whole concept of, snow. you know, snowy winter well, is alien yeah. for most of history in the middle. And now, you know, it happens. The pyramids got covered in snow a few years back, and some very neat photography came out of it. So it can happen, but generally speaking... Yeah, the one you're thinking of, that photo, by the way, actually a fake. Oh, well, that's too bad. Disappointing, but, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, well. But yes, you're right. The Simple things like climate can be wildly different. And the thing is, it's different in, say, you're in Canada where they're receiving Syrian refugees as opposed to anywhere else in the world. It matters a lot. And, it, you know, over generations, that may have a big impact on who can go back, how they grow up, etc. It's a big deal. Yeah, I mean, Germany's taking in a bunch of them. I'm sure their experiences will be very different. They, they're Absolutely. probably not going to be, um, with the way that Germany and Canada both are these days, they're probably both going to be fairly positive, but they're going to be a very different kind of positive. Germany and Canada have different cultures, different customs, different languages. Well, that, yeah, okay. You know, four generations later, can these two groups talk to each other easily? Right, because one's grown up in an area where there's... English and French in Canada, and one's yep. grown up in Europe where, yeah, the, the country that they're in speaks German, but there's neighboring countries that speak other languages and, you know, that, that may or may, they may or may not be able to communicate. Yeah. And they might communicate in French instead of instead their of original language. So, exactly. And how does that affect self-image and so on and so on? This also is a really good, um, I'm going to say kind of a, a flex point for character creation. If you're creating a character who's a member of one of these scattered peoples and identifies as that, this is a great way to put some customization in because let's say it is, let's say you're making a character who's a Syrian refugee and this is in the future, right? So we've had a couple generations. Well, where they grew up and where they were scattered to has a tremendous it's a really easy way for you to create a lot of flex in your character and say, well, you know, they've got these skills and these, uh, you know, they have these languages and all this customization. And, you know, uh, if it's a fantasy game, oh, yeah, um, 
my group of uh, scattered elves was scattered to orcs, so my guy's really strong and worships this god, whereas, oh, uh, my, I, I come from this elf group, but they went to human lands, which is why I'm a half-elf, right? It, it's a real easy way to say, I want to be part of this group, but I've picked an, a host area that defines a lot of the rest of my character. So this is a, a big deal for... It's, it's a big deal for world building, but it's also a really convenient thing to think about for character creation. It's not necessarily always at the level of world building. Yeah, and if you want a character that's a little bit of an outsider in whatever society they're in, well, this is one way of achieving that in yeah, a very absolutely. plausible way. Right, but it's also one of those cases where it scales down from these big world building things we're generally going to be talking about to character, and I think that's important to think about. Yeah, well, I mean, every major world-shaking story is made up of a zillion tiny little personal stories, right? So hmm. Theoretically, yeah. Yeah, this is this is another example of that. Yes. Okay, so okay, so let's talk about collective memory, the second of these saffron points that we wanted to hit on here. The collective memory and vision and myth about this original homeland. This is one of those great opportunities for that creative player who writes 10-page backstories to do something useful instead. <laughs> All right. Not a, not a fan of the uh, novella backstory, huh? I'm really not. I, no. I, I've, I'm tired of it. <laughs> let's, let's just say that. Um, and I'm tired of trying to write them, too. Yeah. But this is one of those things where you say, hey, here is a thing that my character believes and remembers, let me write some stuff about it. Let me write myths. Let me write tales that we remember. Tales my grandfather told me about, you know, uh, where we came from. All that sort of stuff. Tales and myths of what happened. It's a great opportunity for somebody to do some creative writing and have something that matters in the game. It is backstory for that character, maybe, but it is backstory that is more than here's the boring history of my character. It's Well, it's backstory for the world, not just the character. Yeah, it's a, a great place where backstory, character backstory and world building intersect, which is something that players don't get to do enough, in my opinion. Yeah, real quick aside here. Um, we've talked about things like Microscope and uh, Downfall and some of these other kind of collaborative world building exercises. The longer that I'm a gamer and the more I think about this stuff, the more I think those kinds of tools and resources are vastly underutilized by a lot of the gaming population. Now, that's not to say that the, the GM can't build an interesting setting by themselves or that even if they do collaborate, they're not going to be doing most of the work. But I think being able to get the entire group in on certain aspects of setting creation really increases buy-in, and it gives you a much more rich and whole feeling setting in a lot of ways because you've got more than one set of influences on it, and this is a great way of doing that in kind of an unobtrusive and painless fashion. Yeah, it, that that shared world-building... The, the cool thing about that is that the player also gets to create the the tone of that world building by framing it as a story instead of dry history. Sure, yeah. I mean, it can be exciting or grim or it can just be kind of weird or... It can have a very, very mythic tone if you want it to, right? 
you know, a, a Br'er Rabbit style kind of story, a, a high fantasy, uh, imagine a high fantasy settings myths about a, a place and the people that were there and that sort of thing, right? A Tolkien-like poem about a, an event or the kind of um, high bardic story that you'd have told in a high fantasy setting, right? You know, sure. This is a great thing for the bard player because you know you know the bard player is a drama person, right? Oh yeah. Like, like it's, you just know that they they're in the theater department. Well, that's why the that's class exists. Came. I mean, it's to it, give totally. those people that that love that stuff something cool to play with. Right, and this is a great thing for them to play with. Hey, yeah, come up with that story, and recite it. Right. I mean, heck, if you're playing a bard. Make up some songs about it, you know, perform sure. them, you know, maybe not literally, but, you know, have your character perform them as you're traveling and that sort of thing. That's a that's a great character hook. Right. Um, and don't be afraid to be like, yeah, you know, I'll give you an XP point for it. You know, whatever it is, you know, just you get backstory, you get work in the same way that, you know, I, I would give an XP point for somebody who, you know, maintained a wiki for the game or, you know, drew characters or something like that. Yeah, you're you're doing creative collateral for the game. Go for it. Yeah. I think it'd be awesome. The other thing that bears mentioning is while this can be very mythic, it can also be very down to earth and personal. I mm-hmm. mean, these can these can be as common as and ordinary as just, you know, the stories that you hear about your grandparents and stuff. Right. That can add a lot of richness and depth to the world too, even if it doesn't have that sweeping feel to it. It's it's really all about the kind of game that you're trying to run. Yeah. Interestingly, I'm one generation out from that. Oh yeah. Myself. My grandmother came over from Russia to the U.S. when she was a very little girl. So both of her parents were Russian, but I don't know anything about that. And my grandfather was Greek, but enlisted in the U.S. Army. And, you know, on my mom's side, grandfather was Greek. He enlisted in the U.S. Army. He was educated in Greece, but didn't really, like, he never really went back except maybe to visit family. Things like that. So I don't have stories of Greece or Russia. I have stories of these people in America, right? So that's a, you know, that's a case where that collective memory has been lost. But generation before and the generation before that had these stories. Now this was not a diaspora, but it's the same idea of oh, this is what I know about the world based on what I have heard. Well, and I'm many generations removed from that in my family. My uh, one of my little sisters did some genealogy research in high school, and she thinks, unfortunately, Martin is a really common last name, so it's hard to trace it back more than a certain ways, Uh but she thinks there's a decent chance that we might have had ancestors on the Mayflower or one of the other early colony ships. At least some of my family has been here for a very long time. I know that uh, John Woodward came over in 1620 from England, not aboard the Mayflower on the Providence, maybe? I don't recall. It was 1620 or 1624, but he was born in 1585. We know that. So you've got one side of the family that's a very recent arrival and another branch of it that's been here for ages. Yeah, exactly. And that anyway, in and of itself is interesting. It's interesting. But what we're talking about here is kind of the information that we have about, you know, that is passed on from them, right? Right. And so over time, that information gets lost and warped and changed. And that is interesting, too, because let's say it is something like the Mornland in Eberron, 
right? Sure. A, a magical disaster zone. If we're four generations removed from that, well, there may be stories told about that place that may be helpful to adventurers going into the Mornland. But they may not be entirely accurate. They may be warped by time. They may be warped by repeated telling. They may be warped by wishful thinking about what happened there. You know, oh yeah, the, the Grand Palace was this and this and this. Well, not really, but we kind of wish it was. Yeah. yeah. That sort of thing. For an example of this, like, you look at the descriptions of, like, the palaces of David or Solomon in the Old Testament, and it's like, well, you know, that sounds kind of nice, but it's nothing compared to, like, Versailles or something because they didn't have that level of technology yet. So, the you know, the Grand Palace may grow in the telling to keep up with whatever the actual technology of the world is, where in reality it might have been no such thing. Right. You may have myths that grow up about, you know, oh, we, you remember, we, uh, we conquered the, all the surrounding kingdoms. We were, you know, we were the greatest, yada, yada, yada. Our football team was the best, whatever. But that's maybe not really true. But we kind of wish it had been. The achievements that we dream about become reality. So you get the, this interesting warping of what really happened and what's really there. So if you're headed back, I mean, you're... These exile communities, these scattered communities, are a fantastic source of information that you probably need to take with a grain of salt. And those differences between the telling and the reality are, I think, a great place for a GM to throw in some surprises for any group of characters headed anywhere like that. Yeah, and I think probably the, the one piece of advice that I would give to a GM that's wanting to do this is make some of it true and some of it not. It needs to be recognizable. Yeah. I think that's the key thing. You look at it and go, oh, this is what we were talking about, but it's not really the same. But it, it's totally what he was talking about. Just, oh, uh, I see. Okay. You, you need to have yeah, that reaction. Or even it's just been so long that, you know, you can see that this used to be the way that they were describing, but it's changed now. It's overgrown or it's crumbled or something else has moved in or... Yeah, anything like that. Absolutely. It's There's all sorts of changes that can happen. Again, if this is a case where... Um, People, this is political exile as opposed to like a disaster situation. Well, maybe the architecture's changed and the streets have been redone and old stuff has been built over. Right. It's, maybe with or without there. being torn down first. Yeah. Maybe the the temple's been redone into some other god, and you know you you can't go worship Gromsh there anymore. It's uh, whoever it is now. I don't I don't know D anymore. Pelor. <laughs> there we go. There's a good one. You know, maybe it's a temple to Pelor now, but it kind of looks a little gromshy at the corners. Yeah, I mean, you can you can see in the real world sites where some kind of a sacred location has been traded back and forth between multiple different faith traditions. I mean, look at the Hagia Sophia. Oh yeah, I the the Temple of the Mount or the yeah the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Yeah, that's you know a mosque <laughs> just, now. It <laughs> used to be the, well, the Jewish temple. It's, it's pretty much off limits to everybody because nobody can agree on it. Right. You know, it's 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 a mess. But it's the kind of thing that happens when you have these political changes and these scatterings over and over. It just becomes well, and it's the thing not is, where it once this, was. This can sometimes be relatively peaceful, too, right? Let's, let's say sure. that, you know, there was a disaster and this group gets scattered out while somebody else immigrates in, realizes that this used to be some kind of a sacred space, but 
they don't have the same faith tradition, so now it's converted, you'll get something more like the old church that I pass on the way to my in-laws that's now a Hindu temple. Nothing hostile happened there. The building was empty, and another group moved in and converted it to something yeah, that's more suited to it. their needs. Exactly. Or you may have something where, you know, economic changes happened, and the Mayan cities, for example, were abandoned, and pyramids left, and the rainforest moves in. Yep. Well, these these people left and scattered into the surrounding area, but there were no political disruptions. It's just the economy collapsed. Yeah. That's the, the current theory about what happened there. <laughs> and nature don't care. Yeah. So let's move on. Alienation from the host society. This is number three. This imposed or self-imposed outsider status. This is kind of a fraught one. But because it is so fraught, this is a wonderful gold mine of drama and action and characterization and everything else you want in an RPG. Yeah. It's great. So in this particular case, um, it probably helps to look at these, the members of this diaspora as an immigrant group and how they would adapt to their new society. And I'm going to give you a hopefully fairly benign example from <laughs> yes, well. American history. We did say this was fraught, yes. Yes, it is, we it don't is talk somewhat politics fraught, but this, this is also somewhat historical here, so... Yes, history. Yeah. Politics, safely removed by time. Yeah. So, when the Irish came here, they, like pretty much every new immigrant group that comes to the United States, took a lot of the jobs that nobody wanted at the time, because that's kind of how immigrant groups integrate themselves into societies. Well... In that particular window in history, a lot of those jobs were what have now become kind of our protector class. They became police and firefighters and other people doing that sort of thing. They obviously took a great deal of other jobs, too, but that was one of them that kind of turned into a family business. So you will see a large number of people of Irish descent in the emergency services to this day. And it's kind of a point of cultural pride among some of them. It's like, oh, yes, you know, we we came to this country, we were poor, and now we're protecting the rest of you. Mm -hmm. It's, yeah, it's an interesting change. Yeah. And it, it's an interesting way of saying, oh, this is an Irishman's job, right? It becomes kind of an a thing that is exclusive, and it also helps kind of define the border, this idea that, oh, well... We're not really part of you, right? Uh, you got the same thing with Chinese workers who fled the war and economic collapse in China in the 19th century and very early 20th century. They come to the West Coast of the United States. Well, they're working on the railroad, right? You have these yep. all of these Chinese workers on the railroad, as well as opening businesses in you know San Francisco and other parts of California, that sort of thing. But you get these workers on the railroad, it's, it's these, it's a Chinese job. Employment becomes this big thing that defines who you are and what you do, right? Chinese laundry. It's a very traditional thing where you, oh yeah, yeah. The Chinese people do laundry here. Well, it, they don't have to. No. Anybody can do laundry. It's just a niche that particular immigrant group carved out for themselves because they saw a need and they stepped in to fill it. Right, and it becomes a a way of defining differences, right? And and one of those things that kind of alienates a little bit, and it, it creates that outsider status, but also bridges the gap to a certain degree. 
Yeah, because it's then it's like the hosting people are like, well, these people aren't exactly like us, but man, I sure like having my shirts pressed. Right. And Chinatown is a big thing, right? They These Chinese immigrants are alienated a, a little bit because they live in their own section of town. Right. And that happens because of language and because you want to live with family and because maybe this is the area of town that isn't very expensive to live in initially. So, you know, immigrants who don't have money can can go there without having to move into the expensive part of town. You know, maybe it starts off on the outskirts of town. It becomes a little walled enclave where these poor refugees moved in and settled in tents and eventually built houses and kind of becomes a permanent place where they live it becomes their own neighborhood but that geographic isolation becomes part of the alienation from the host society we live here everyone else lives outside the walls yeah now this can also be imposed by the host society sometimes too sure Um, oh no no you can only live within this little ghetto that we have created yeah totally happens and it's not very complimentary to the host country usually, but it certainly happens and is a great thing to bring into a game. You say, oh no, we don't get to live inside the walls. We only get to live outside the protection of the city walls, right? Something like that. Or we only get to live uh, in the two square miles set aside for us. Yeah. We're not allowed to buy property outside. it. Yeah, we can't well, live in the eastern side of the city or whatever. Sure. Uh, you can't live within... Uh, three miles of the of the castle, whatever, right? Some way to say you only get to be here and, and not here. It alienates and sets apart and creates tension and conflict where otherwise there wouldn't be any. And that's great for a game because that's where drama and story happens. Speaking of tension and conflict, I'm going to call back to episode 129 of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff where... They, in turn, talked about a Malcolm Gladwell article, and I will have all of this linked in the show notes, where Gladwell observed that it was, for a long time, kind of part of the immigrant experience to gain power through organized crime. You would start out without any real legitimate ways up the ladder available to you, so you would band together with other people who you got along with or trusted or understood because you had a shared heritage form these crime syndicates and eventually would gain power and legitimacy that way. Doesn't say the greatest thing about the United States in a lot of ways where that was kind of a necessary stepping stone, but there's definitely some historical context for that. The The most obvious and most romanticized version of this is the Italians, of course, but it's it's definitely a trend that's been observed. So once again, in a gaming context, if you've got this group where Some of them are trying to get ahead through whatever means necessary, and some of them are trying to integrate into the society through the legitimate means, or some of them are just trying to survive and keep their heads down. You can get a lot of interesting tension in the members of the same group in this kind of isolated area where they may not feel like they can go to the quote-unquote legitimate authorities because it would be a betrayal of their own or... The authorities won't listen because they consider them to be inferior or something. I mean, all of the all of the problems that people have with othering each other in the real world and the consequences that spread out from that, they can exist in your setting. 
and you're, you hit on something important there. Believing that you aren't accepted is often just as powerful as not being accepted. Yeah, sometimes more so. Right. You know, if our identity is that we're separate, even if the, you know, the host culture is more than willing to bring you in and integrate you, if you don't believe you can be integrated for whatever reason, then, you know, you're not going to and there's going to be that conflict. And, you know, dissident groups will prey on that and all sorts of interesting, dramatic things will happen. So something else to keep in mind. Yep. I think we do need to move on from that. Um, but we're, we're going to touch on some of the related themes yeah. pretty readily. The la- Number four here, the dream of returning home. This is a big one, because this is kind of what it's all about, right? Right. We, we regard the ancestral homeland as the true, ideal home, and where we should eventually return, where our descendants will eventually return when the time is right. Oh, boy. This, let's start with political distrust. If you have a sub-community living in your borders that identifies itself as loyal to something and someone else, that is not necessarily going to endear those people to the local political leadership. No. (laughs) If they don't even consider themselves to be citizens of the society they're living in, that can be a problem from a civic standpoint. Yes. You know, so you have your, you have your um, district was it District Nine, District Eight? Oh, movie? the the movie with the the um, the aliens. Yeah, uh, District Nine, I think. Yeah, I never saw it, and I really should. Oh, you should. But it's good. I, I know. I I know it's so good. I just I haven't. It's on my list of things to do eventually one day. Yeah, well, I, I would be the last one to throw stones about having a huge backlog. <clears throat> Fair enough. You have a blog about it. I do. Um, but that idea of, you know, we don't trust you because we don't think you're, you're loyal to, you're, you want to just get home. You, what, what are you really about, right? That, that idea of distrust and isolation, you know, we, you want to get home? What would you do to get home? Why are you really here? Yeah, that, well, and there's also the, all of the thing is, okay, what are, what are you willing to do to get home? And where will that leave us after you leave? Sure. I mean, imagine if the entirety of an exile group, you know, in the early 20th century United States just up and left because they could go home. It's a massive economic disruption. Well, I'll give you a biblical example. Moses. Sure. The Israelites leaving Egypt. That was a problem. They were a major economic consideration being, you know, free labor, basically. Right. And... Now, it's, it's worth pointing out that when the Israelites return home from Babylon, because the Persians take over, and Persia was, by the standards of that era and area, really pretty easygoing, they said, oh, yeah, have Israel back. That's cool. Go back to Judea. And, you know, there was economic disruption, but it was not too bad because it was a planned thing and was supported, right? Yeah. But before that, no, we don't. We don't trust you. We're we're keeping you here. You know, it's it's a very different sort of thing. The dream of returning home can be a huge motivator. That seems obvious, but there are a lot of stories about wanting to go home. the The desire to go home is a kind of a fundamental human thing. Yeah, 
And it, it can be something other than cultural longing, although cultural longing is a big deal. You've got a Mass Effect example for this. Yeah, this is this goes back to Rannick again. Um, the uh, the Koreans have this homeworld that they're from, where it's really the only place where they can live without these environment suits that they're stuck in otherwise. Uh, the Their place in the ecosystem of that planet is such where... I forget it, the exact in-world description. I don't know if it's something like the uh, the local microbes are very different from they are the way they are anywhere else in the setting, but they can comfortably survive and walk around in just like normal clothing like you or I does on Earth if they're on their home world. If they're anywhere else, they basically have to live out their entire life in a spacesuit. Yeah. That would be pretty motivating to get back to this planet, I would think. That would get old after a while, especially multiple generations. Yeah, definitely. You know, Mom, why do I have to wear a spacesuit? You know, it... Because you will die without one. Oh. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Interestingly, and this is a, a point that I really like that you, you pointed out here, Superman only has powers because he's not at home. Yep. Because he is... An exile from a destroyed place. He is, you know, the, all of the remaining Kryptonians are a scattered people. They are a diaspora. and A very small one, but they are a diaspora. Very small. Right. The fact that Earth's son affects him in a useful way and he becomes a superhero is interesting because when he goes home, he stops being Kryptonian. He's a Kryptonian and he is normal. Yeah. Right. It may go, it may have some other interesting effects to go home that may not necessarily be heroic or dramatic. Might be quite the opposite. Yeah, very anticlimactic. Yeah, or at least, you know, hey, I've gone home. I can't do the things that make me different here. They don't make me different. I'm just one of them. And when everyone's special... No one will be, yeah. Right, you know. <laughs> Thank you, Syndrome. Yes. It's also worth mentioning that there may be cases where it is literally impossible for this ever to be achieved. I mean, I would think that in Star Wars, everybody from Alderaan forms a diaspora. Yes. But you can't go back. That planet has been vaporized. Yes, you you may collect your commemorative asteroid, but you can't go home again. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you remember I, I said that when conditions are right, the that's the dream of returning home. Right. Those conditions are a great point to get your drama and contention. Right? Oh, yeah. Are those conditions clear? Or do the exiles debate among themselves about when we get to go home? Who's in charge when we do go home? Who leads the way? What do we need to do to start the process? What will happen when we do? Right? Yeah. What happens if we hit a snag in the process? Yeah. Who determines um, if we have? Yeah, you get your uh, Life of Brian kind of stuff, you know, Judeans, people front, and the people's front of Judea, fighting for the the reclamation of Judea. Well, they're, I mean, first off, they're both comic groups, obviously, because right. it's a Monty Python movie, but, you know, there are these two groups with exactly the same goal, but they have split fiercely amongst themselves for very minor, silly reasons. But neither one is willing to give and say, to accomplish our goal, we'll step aside. Because at that point, leadership of the goal has become more important than the goal. They've lost sight of reclamation. Yeah, absolutely. Something else to think about, are the conditions for return something that your heroic protagonists 
could trigger? Are they something that they could meet? Or are there some large-scale sociological, ecological, political changes that have to happen that would take generations to affect? In other words, can your players get, you know, start the process of returning from exile? Can they end the diaspora? Or is that pretty much out of the question this time, you know, for your game, and you just have to deal with the fact that these people are scattered? Again, or on a potentially more grim and tragic note, is there some reason why, if these people do manage to get home, that will be very, very bad? Sure. And uh, you have to work against it. Right. Yeah. No, we can't go home again. I'm sorry. I know it seems inviting, but it's a trap. Yeah, that will let the Lich Lord out. We can't do that. Well, or it will cause this war, and then we will all be destroyed. We can't do it now. We have to put it off another generation or two. Something like that. Sure, it looks fine, but the radiation will eventually cause us all to become sterile and die out. Things like that. And that's kind of a world-building decision, but it's a question of, do I open the door for the protagonist to make this something big and important in the game? Or is it just kind of a, a setting detail that isn't going to be resolved in this game, though it'll certainly affect it? Yeah, That's kind of what you have to decide and talk about. And your players may surprise you, you know, one way or the other. But you need to have an initial decision on that. Yeah, player characters are very good at coming up with ways around what you think is going to be the way things work. That's part of why you game in the first place. And they're big on doing things that are really big, much bigger than you expected. Yeah. So, there you go. Number five, the collective commitment to maintenance and restoration of the homeland. Each generation runs the risk, at least from the elder generation's perspective, of losing sight of that commitment. Oh, nobody wants to be X anymore. They want to be the host culture, right? Uh, oh, they don't want to be... Uh, elves anymore. They just want to be humans. They don't want to be elves. They want to be Breelish, right? I'm trying to think of a, a well, an Eberron example here. Uh, halflings, right? These aren't really exiles. There's, or well, actually, no. Here's a good example: Sirens, uh, right? Oh, you know, nobody wants to be Sirens anymore. They don't identify as Sirens. They're all Breelish or Thrain or, or you know, what have you. They're all the member of the the countries they grew up in. They don't remember that they're Siren. Well, because Sir doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, it's it's right? about a half step removed from Alderan and its level of annihilation. Yeah. I mean, it's on the map, technically, marked, don't go here. Well, something um, is on the map. It's not yeah. Sire, but right. something but the, is on the map. You know, the, map. the older generations are always going to fear that loss of identity, right? Yeah. And it will probably be true for some of them, but not necessarily for everyone. And so that generational conflict can be a big deal. The, the integration process may be desirable to the host country maybe oh well you're not separated anymore good you're joining us and you know in a few generations you look ahead and say yeah this isn't going to be a thing anymore we're all just going to be us or they may say we don't want you stay out right and, and that creates we'll shelter you but you are not part of us go home exactly likewise the idea that People have, you know, everybody needs to work together for the safety and the prosperity of that homeland, even though we're not there. Well, that creates an interesting dynamic where we're putting money and resources and effort into causes that might be pipe dreams. Yeah, you may never dangerous. get anything out of this. 
yeah, you know, oh yeah, we're um we're taking up a donation to try and get the Mornland to turn back into Seer. Well, that seems kind of crazy, doesn't it? Are we really going to donate to that? But maybe we are, because we kind of hope that we'll eventually get it back if we just work hard enough. Well, and then you're also in the interesting position if you're the beneficiary of that stuff. How do you take these resources that will probably be far short of whatever you need to accomplish the goal and try and do something useful with them? Or, you know, those people could be corrupt, too, and wasting them, and that could be a whole storyline in and of itself. But let's say that you're doing it in good faith. You've you've got the whole project of, you know, trying to restore Seer. You have 20,000 gold pieces. Now, that's not nothing, but that's certainly not enough to turn an annihilated magical wasteland back into a habitable country again. So what do you do with that? Right. Well, but maybe it's enough to hire some troops. And maybe you're going to march against the Moorland, but your host country's going to look at that and go, now why is this guy hiring troops in my borders? Yeah. He says it's for this. Is it really? Yeah. What's with this mercenary company all of a sudden? Right. Uh, You saw this with the zealots in the time of Jesus, right? Yeah. The Jewish zealots. These people who turned to violent means to try and reclaim their homeland and bring the scattered Jews, these Hellenized Jews, back to Israel because it had been reclaimed. You're putting effort and, you know, people are supporting it. You're putting effort and finances and all of these resources into what turns out to be a pretty violent pipe dream. You're raising guerrilla troops to try and fight for this. And maybe it's a lost cause, maybe not, but it's certainly turning violent. Well, and that's another interesting thought is it's like the resources that you're expending might not all be measurable in money, right? I mean, social sure. capital is definitely something that societies have to consider. And yeah. if you are creating a lot of bad will with your you know, violent insurgency or something, that's going to affect people who have no involvement in it at all, too. Definitely. Um, there's kind of a, a traditional trope in sort of your your courtly fantasy settings where it's uh, oh you know or your your historical courtly settings of this guy who's hanging around in court trying to get political capital lined up for some project right and it's he spent so much time here that everybody's heard it and everybody just sort of humors him hanging around, but he's never going to get anywhere because he spent all of that political capital and nothing's going to happen anymore. Yeah. You may have that. And then the challenge is, okay, revitalize that or find some different way to solve the problem. If it's an ecological <laughs> that guy kind sounds of problem. like a quest giver in an RPG well, yeah. setting. Well, or maybe an antagonist because he's, he's stuck in his ways or he's got political connections now and... You know, he doesn't want to give them up because if if you succeed, well, he loses. He's no longer necessary. Yeah, also a definite right? possibility. Or at least he doesn't think he is. If it's an ecological problem, like a Chernobyl kind of issue or, you know, something like that, you're pouring resources into ecological cleanup or restoring an area after a war. It's not habitable yet, but maybe it will be one day. You know, our children's children will eventually get to move back to Earth. Okay, well, yeah. that seems a long will, way off. Will it Are even we really be recognizable that? at that point? How many species have been extincted that were there when you lived there, you know? Sure. And so that commitment 
it ties people together, right? Because we're all, we're all giving for this cause. But at the same time, you look at it and go, could we be doing something else with this? And that becomes a point of conflict. And how that giving is interpreted can start to maybe be a, a sore spot with the host country, with yeah. host people. Last thing I want to talk about is this last, well, the last element of this that I want to talk about, this last characteristic, is it's the most abstract of these six characteristics. Maybe the least useful in terms of, the least useful for GMs, okay? I think it's probably the most useful for players. And maybe the most useful for GMs who are giving character to a NPC. Okay. This is self-identification. Self-identification that's connected to that homeland and communal exile and is a primary self-defining characteristic. It's the guy who says, who lives in New York but says, I'm Irish. I'm Russian. It's the, guy, uh, the half-elf who says, no, no, I come from the elf lands. Well, you've been here four generations. But I come from the elf lands. Yeah. You know. That kind of thing. It's who you identify as. Like I said, in, there. this is not a world design question. It's right. a character question. It's it's something that suffuses the character, and it comes out through roleplay. I'll give you a real personal quick example. I actually consider myself to be from Woodstock, even though I didn't live there until I was 10, because mm -hmm. I had all of my formative experiences there, really. Sure. You know, I, you know, I went to high school there. I made a bunch of friendships that I still have at least occasional contact with there. You know, I learned to drive there. I had my first job there. All of these things that kind of continue to define you into your adulthood happened to me when I lived in Woodstock, not in Richmond, the town that I had my first 10 years of life in. Well, and like you and my wife have had this ongoing joke about, you know, Yankees versus Southerners, right? Right. If... We had to move up to where you guys are. My wife would absolutely continue to call herself a Southerner, no matter how long she lived up north. Right. Right. She identifies as that, and she'd be cooking Southern food and teaching you guys all about the wonders of properly cooked grits and hush, hush puppies and that sort of thing. She almost would probably get more into it, living in exile, as it were, up there, than she does around here. Because around here, it's just normal. I can go right. get hush puppies. I don't know how to cook them. Right? But you can find them at any number of restaurants and stuff. Right. I, I can just I can go buy them. But if I can no longer do that anymore, well, all of a sudden, it's really important to me to maintain that. Well, and, and so, I mean, I've only had them once, and I don't think I would want to go the rest of my life without hush puppies at this point. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, and so, th but that becomes kind of a, a lens through which we view the rest of our life, right? Right. I am this because I kind of have to be that to, to set myself apart. And so a character who views themselves through that lens is going to be sympathetic to others in that position, and it's going to color the way that they interact with the rest of the world. Certainly it's going to color their role play. Yeah. Now, this does have, I think, some interesting mechanical effects in game because I might... Not necessarily in sense of big changes, but in terms of character choices. I may look at this and say, okay, well, w let's say I'm playing that, that half-elf who identifies as 
uh, you know, as being from the elven homeland, right? Right. Maybe he only uses elven weapons. He'll never wear heavy armor. He's only going to wear kind of the, the traditional light armor of his homeland. Let's say this is Eberron, and I'm part of a scattered halfling community. The halflings aren't really scattered necessarily, but let's pretend that they were. Well, my halfling's going to be a barbarian in wherever I am, and maybe he's got a dinosaur. Halflings ride dinosaurs in Eberron. It's one of the things that makes it awesome. Yeah, that is pretty cool. And so maybe I really focus, you know, it's like, yeah, no, no, I ride a dinosaur because I am a Talenta halfling. Not, you know, but you're in Breland. But I'm a Talenta halfling, which is why I have a dinosaur. And I've made a character choice, which has some mechanical effects, right? You know, it, it's clear on my character sheet, but it's driven by my characterization as this living here instead of a guy from here. Right. You know, maybe I'm going to worship that particular god, which is unusual in this area, in this fantasy setting, right? Maybe I have access to different kinds of technology, right? Or I understand different kinds of technology in a sci-fi setting. Because, oh, well, yeah, we've we've always kind of used it at home. Yeah, it could be like the planet that I come from has much more advanced bioengineering or something, but yours is better with information technologies. So, you know, it's like, ah, this guy really just can't get the hang of the user interface for anything, but he never seems to get sick. Right. <laughs> Stuff like that. So it has effects at the character level, and it helps define them, perhaps mechanically, in interesting ways. But a lot of it really is going to come out through roleplay. Uh, especially because an outsider will look at this and say, why are you defining this as an us versus them thing? I didn't know this was a thing. But this person says, no, no, I'm this, y'all are that. And just because you don't recognize that doesn't mean I don't. Right. The last thing I want to talk about is what happens when a diaspora ends. And I'm not going to get this into this a lot. But this is a big event. And it should be a big event in your campaign when it happens, because this is a major political and social shakeup, at least for that community of exiles. Yeah. Right? It may not be a big change on the world stage, but regionally, locally, it may be a big deal. For your characters, it'll certainly be a big deal. The local newspaper may read, tiny ethnic group returns to uninhabitable, you know, wasteland or something. But for the members of that ethnic group, they've come home. Exactly. Uh, and of course, it may be a big deal, right? I mean, this may be a massive political and social shakeup that has world-changing effects. I mean, this could be the recolonization of Earth, you know? Sure. Oh, yeah. That would be a huge deal. So what you need to think about is, maybe is this the triggering event for my story? Is it, all right, we're all coming home, now what? And all of these follow-on effects that we've hinted at start coming into play. Or maybe this the end of this diaspora is the natural result of your player actions. In which case, hey, it's a reward. You've succeeded. Now you got to deal with the consequences. Yeah. Right? Or that's where you wrap up and you get your homecoming moment and that's where you say, the end, good job. But think you need to think about what will happen or could happen when the diaspora ends and decide what that means for your story. Is it the start? Is it the end? Is it the next step? Whatever. Regardless, it's going to be a big source of drama and action, and you should absolutely be excited about it rather than scared of it. <laughs> yeah. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. Make it interesting. Make it fun. Give it some weight. Yeah. Perfect. 
And on that note, that very, very long note, I think it's time to wrap this up. Yes, I think so, too. I think this is going to be one of our longest episodes ever, so... Uh, no. Not at all. But it'll be lengthy. Well, yeah, I think we've gone close to an hour and a half on a few of them before, but... Yeah, we have, and we have chunks to edit out. Yeah. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed it. I want to hear your thoughts on it, uh, especially those of you maybe who come from communities that identify as these scattered peoples. If that has influenced your role-playing or the kind of stories that you have, I really want to hear about it. That would be fantastic, because I'm not, <laughs> and I I yeah. want to hear from people who are. Cause the, and I think other people probably would, too. Yeah, definitely same here. Um, I, I, <laughs> I think any of that stuff that can be... It's all just really fascinating, and anything interesting is also probably gameable, so... Definitely. Double utility. So, from those of us here at Saving the Game, have a good one, take it easy. We will catch you next time, and hopefully it'll be, <laughs> it'll be as fun as this one. Yep. See you later, folks. This podcast episode is a production of Saving the Game and may be redistributed under a Creative Commons non-commercial, non-derivative license, so long as appropriate credit is given. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. Saving the Game is syndicated through inroadsministries.com, rpgpodcasts.com, stitcher.com, and iTunes. To hear past episodes and to connect with us or our community of listeners, visit our website at savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, and happy gaming.